This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO Wisdom Tree. I'm in our Penn studio, live on Penn's campus. Exciting to be here with a with a guest. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a CRI's Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show. We're going to talk about one of the sectors of the economy that's been hit by all the rising rates and uh, a CIO local to Philadelphia here, so it'll be exciting to talk to him. But Professor, we had a key economic data, finally some green on the screen after a very tough week. What's your uh, your sense of what's going on today? I like that alliteration, Jeremy, green on the screen. In fact, as soon as I saw these numbers, I said there's going to be green on the screen today. Um, yeah, they're good for what the market is worried about. Um, uh, first of all, you know, the, the tick up of that unemployment rate three seven. People are entering the labor force. We see that with the labor participation rate. That takes pressure off the labor uh, uh, market tightness. Uh, we also had um, uh, hourly earnings come in one-tenth uh, under expectations. So, I mean, all that is, 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 is very, very good. Um, although the, the headline number came in as, as um, pretty close to expected, this was not all that strong a report. I mean, uh, first of all, there's 107,000 um, uh, downward revision the previous two months. Interestingly, almost all coming. Uh, from the month of June, not July. Uh, but also we had a tick downward again uh, in the uh, hourly, um, uh, the, the um, uh, number of uh, weekly hours, average hourly, uh, uh, weekly hours of all employees uh, down to 34.5. Um, it's often an ignored variable, and it shouldn't be, because if you have a one-tenth one of a, uh, uh, our uh, decline, that's almost equivalent to 300,000 work, uh, workers in terms of the amount of effort that's expended. So it is often ignored, but it shows that um, there there is less uh, hours actually being put in. So it wasn't overly strong, no pressure on the more supply coming in. This is all very, very good, and I'm absolutely not surprised um, the market has rallied. I, I think what's so important to concentrate on, especially in light of that, uh, what, what I considered uh, the overly hawkish tone of Jerome Powell's talk uh, last Friday, um, it, a couple of very interesting um, other uh, data that we got over the week. Um, particularly, uh, when we get the ISM numbers, which is the Institute of Supply Management, and we looked at the overall number, and it was pretty much as, as expected, uh, prices paid down to 52.5, um, way under expectation, below 60, which had fallen almost 20 from the previous month. I look back on that series, this, we've had the, the, the second largest two-month drop in the ISM price index since its construction in the 1970s. The only time when prices have fallen at a more rapid pace, um, uh, now it has achieved a lower level. I mean, it, it, it's still at 52.5, which shows that about as many prices rise as fallen. I'm talking about the rate of decline was only exceeded during uh, the worst part of the financial crisis in 2008. Another very important number that came in, um, again, often ignored, uh, was uh, the, um, the price indexes. Not only the Shiller, um, uh, K-Shiller price indexes, which are now called S&P CoreLogic K-Shiller price indexes, came in well below expectations, but also the Federal Housing Finance Authority, FH, uh, FA, house price index was expected to be up eight-tenths, was up only one-tenth of a percent. 
I mean, this is from 1.4 the the month. And we've been talking about the fact that home prices are not not going up anymore. Uh, interestingly enough, this was for the month of June, so it's very lag. We're July, we're August, but uh, I mean, it just accelerates the fact that the actual uh, on the ground pricing in housing has peaked. Now, again. Uh, you're not going to see it in the, uh, you know, official CPI statistics because it's so lagged in the way that it's brought in. It'll continue to show a rise when we get those uh, CPI numbers on uh, September 13th, etc. cetera. Um, we are hoping that Jerome Powell will look beyond those and, and, and try to look at the, these on-the-ground numbers. Um, uh, I pointed out on CNBC yesterday uh, which is a really interesting statistic, and we can add today with the price uh, paid uh, numbers out of the ISLM, uh, that out of the uh, 27 price indices uh, that have been reported, PPI, CPI, import price index, ISM indices, GDP indices, every the that have been reported since August 1st, um, all but one have gone down. So we've had, I think, 20, 26 have gone down. When I said gone down, below expectations, that's more important, not just going down, below expectations. I'm supposed to get 50% below expectations. You've got 26 below and only one, which was a, a GDP number, was one-tenth above on the price index, which isn't all that important, above. All of them are falling below expectations, which I, I think is, is just continuing to theme that I have been maintaining that inflation has peaked, whether or, you know, and it, whether or not the, the, it comes into the official statistics or not. Everything has been going down. Um, so uh, the market is, 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 you know, knows that the top, Powell's talking top, if he's looking at year over year, we know they're going to stay very high. If he waits until it gets down to 2%, he's going to be waiting way too long. Um, uh, he has to be cognizant of what is really happening on on that price front, which is a big de decline. Uh, again, as we see, the money supply basically stopped in its tracks in 2022. Professor, I don't know how much you've seen the the people commenting on Kashkari's interview on on the Odd Dots podcast, where he he talked about welcoming the decline in the markets. If if is it counterproductive for stocks to rally for the Fed's goals here? Uh, no, I, I I really think the the Fed is not going to be putting any put on the market um, unless it gets really bad, um, and which I don't expect it to. Um, but I also, you know, don't don't think if the market starts rallying from from this point onward that not necessarily will mean oh my God, we have to squish the market. Um, uh, they should have looked at the market bubbly behavior in uh, late 2020-21 to have known that they were oversupplying liquidity. Um, you know, at this particular point, we've had the bear markets in S and P and a deeper one in Nasdaq. Um, my feeling is is the market itself won't be the big indicator. But I think, again, what the market is looking for is, yes, we want power to squelch inflation, but we want to realize that the on-the-ground numbers are going down. And to, to say we're going to say it's 35 or 4% on the Fed funds rate through 2023 is ridiculous. I pointed out, by the way, and I think, I think our readers should know, on the September meeting, of last year, eight of uh, eight of the 16 FOMC members that gave their projections for the next year said there will be no increases, should be no increases for 2022. Five said only 25 basis points, and the most hawkish said 50. To show you how little they have uh, the ability not only to forecast but to know what they're going to be doing themselves a year hence makes me say uh, almost laugh when I hear these people say we're going to be staying tight through 2023. It depends completely on the data 
because all their all their predictions that they made in that September meeting of 2021, and by the way, inflation was beginning to boil up at that particular time, to say the least, were absolutely off the mark. Very good. Matt, do you want to hop in with any comments, questions? Sure. Just one quick question, uh, Dr. Siegel. It's Matt Topley, Lansing Street Advisors. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw a statistic, once inflation goes above 5%, it never goes down without the Fed funds rate exceeding CPI. Is that accurate, or and do you think that's going yeah. to happen in your near well, term? Well, uh, uh, one has to take into account a, a number of things, and that is that over the last 20, 30, 40, 50, well, it's been 40 years since they had this inflation, the real rate of interest has gone way down and is trending downward. Right. So, which means that the nominal rate of interest does not have to get as high as it used to be to squelch the economy. Um, so, uh, you know, as I say, I think forward inflation is actually well below 5%, well below 4%, actual forward inflation not CPI-constructed forward inflation, but actual forward inflation uh, is lower. But you don't have to get as high as you used to because real rates have just sunk, um, and you can be tighter. Um, I, I think right now we're above neutral um, uh, for a 2% rate of inflation. I actually think that 1.5% uh, is the neutral Fed funds rate. Now, we do have that for 2% inflation. So if you say there's three or four forward looking, you want to bring it up to two and a half, three and a half. Um, but you don't necessarily want to keep it that high. So, again, you have to be cognizant of the dramatic decline in real rates, which has been a worldwide phenomenon and very, very persistent. And so many of the commentators that I've listened to and even people that to me, I think, should know better. I keep on acting like, oh, yeah, the real rate should be 2% or whatever, because that's what's been the last 50 years, and they've ignored all the evidence on the ground that it has fallen well below that. The Fed itself, by the way, from the 1980s, when they thought that 45 to 5% was the neutral Fed funds rate, now it says it's 25 They still have not lowered it to where it should be, but they've lowered it 200 basis points. Professor, enjoy the holiday weekend. Yes, you too. We'll talk next week. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to turn the conversation to our guest here live in the studio. We have Matt Topley, uh, founder, CIO of Landstring Street Advisors. Matt, welcome to the studio. Welcome back here to Behind the Markets. Thanks, Jeremy. I appreciate you having me back. I think this was uh, the second uh, podcast slash radio interview I ever did four or five, six years ago. I don't know how many years ago it was, but I appreciate it. Um, you know, so one of the topics we're going to talk about uh, is, as the professor was talking about, was home prices, housing. That's going to be one of the things I, I want to talk to people about. But give people a little bit of your background, what you do at Lansing Street, a little bit about just how you came to found the firm. So just people have a context of who, who we're talking to here today. Sure. Uh, short history in my background, a little bit different background than most CIOs at uh, an RIA I was on a very busy trading desk, Turner Investment Partners, for 17 years, one of the busiest buy-side mutual fund trading desks in the country when it came to U.S. equities. Uh, we had years where we generated over $100 million in commission. So that was my baptism to the investment world, and it was 1997 when I started there. So uh, I started in the middle of the internet bubble at a momentum, small cap growth, technology-based firm uh, with one, two, three, four hundred percent turnover in the funds, depending on what fund you were talking about. So it was a fabulous experience. It was front row seat to the sausage factory of Wall Street, and it gave me a lot of uh, interpretations that I would use later as I morphed out of the institutional world, which is the mutual fund world, to uh, the family office world. And at my former firm, I was CIO at a family office for extremely wealthy families. Uh, and then from there, I spun out of there. I was there four or five years, and out of there, I spun out and started Lansing Street Advisors a little over two years ago. So, how much of what what you've seen in the market in the last few years reminds you from of those '97 to 2000 days? How what, what is similar? What is different to you? Good question. So, of all the market history you and I look at a lot, we've known each other a, f a fairly long time now. Uh, for sure, this market resembles 99, 2000 more than any other market. 
we had still today or, or, or two years like two years ago no i mean not today but more importantly i think if you if you read my last couple quarterly letters what most people don't realize we got the 32 times earnings in the nasdaq forward earnings in the nasdaq which is extremely expensive versus history but ridiculously unex- inexpensive versus the 99-2000 internet bubble. I think the NASDAQ got to something like 200 times forward price to earnings, or, or you, you can look it up, but it was way higher than 32 times. So it was a much bigger speculative bubble than we have today. There was a lot of similarities, but keep in mind, I think something like 80-90% of the inflows in 99-2000 before the bubble burst were going directly into the NASDAQ. No money, everything else in the world was cheap. Bonds were cheap, value stocks were cheap, international was cheap. The only thing that was expensive really was uh, technology stocks. So very similar, but 99 was much worse. That, so that narrative could be, that narrative is very true today. Sure, absolutely. Uh, and we can get into that further because of all the work Wisdom Tree does and everything, but absolutely uh, value still cheap today. Internationally is record cheap today, 15 straight years of underperformance versus the US, right? So. There's definitely some similarities there. The big dissimilar, the thing that is not similar is bonds have just entered a bear market after a 40-year bull market, uh, and interest rates at the point of this bubble bursting were, you know, below one percent, negative in real terms. Yeah. Where I think in 99, 2000, we were at like five, six percent interest rates. Right. You had a three or four percent tips rate in Correct. 99, 2000, which made that a very different, yeah. compelling proposition. It, for your clients, um, how much when you think international is cheap, how much would you think about allocating to international and and how um, how do they react to the underperformance? Sure. So we are underweight international. We've been underweight international for quite a while. Uh, the two reasons. Fundamentally, the world has changed. Defining international is a lot different than it used to be because of globalization, right? Is Apple, is Facebook, or these, or maybe Facebook's not the best example. Is Apple, uh, isn't it an international company in some ways? That's number one. Number two, just technically, momentum-wise, uh, international still has not given any signals that it's going to overtake the U.S., but keeping in mind, uh, the, the third thing I should mention, we're going in the wrong direction in a lot of countries internationally, right? What's going on in China right now, what's going on in Russia right now, there's some of the geopolitical reasons that international looks a little more dangerous to invest in right now. But keep in mind, we're huge believers in reversion to the mean, and we're believers that uh, just when everyone wants to give up on an asset class is usually the best time to invest in it. And everyone's pretty much getting close or close to giving up an international. Uh, and if you look at 99, 2000, I believe in like 2001, 2002, emerging markets value had some absurd returns, like 200 plus percent in a 18 month period. Uh, some of these statistics might be slightly off, but you get the idea. So I do think that'll happen again. Uh, I just don't know when. And right now, technically, from a momentum perspective, there's not momentum in international right now. China's been uh, doing some things very recently in the last couple of weeks that could be uh, viewed as positive, but we'll keep a watch on that because they were certainly going in the wrong direction for the last year. We're talking with Matt Topley, who's the founder, president of Lansing Street Advisors, a local Philadelphia CIO, about how he looks at portfolios and the markets. Matt, one of the things that we talked about, um, one of the last trades you and I discussed, you had a client who was looking to do sort of a long short trade and looking at this exact topic of things being expensive and going to small cap value. Has, did you put that trade? you want to talk about the trade? How it came to be? Is it still on? What, what, talk about that one a little bit. Yes. Uh, the trade is not still on. Uh, we did well in the trade, but we did not hit it out of the park, which was the goal. Uh, we were short the most expensive things in the U.S. market, the things that are trading at 10 times sales. Uh, the, the things trading at 10 times sales don't have a history of really doing well in the next uh, 18 to 24 to five years. So we were short a lot of the things you would know that were extremely expensive. And we were long uh, the cheapest stocks in the world through ETFs, uh, emerging market value, international value. 
So the trade went well. If if it was a traditional hedge fund, you would say it went really well. We're, we were 50% international. If you compared us to the MSCI Global, we beat it by over 10%. This was a separately managed account trade, by the way. This is not a mutual fund or anything. And then we beat the S&P by 6 7 8%. Uh, but we were going for the kill, uh, you know, the 200% return. Now, we're re-examining the trade now. I have another client who's doing a version of the trade now, and the original client who did the large trade, uh, that was a significant trade for our firm, uh, is re-examining the trade now because there is still a lot of names out there that are trading at 10 times sales plus. And on top of that, a lot of those same names – you would have to do your own due diligence here, but uh, there's a lot of false appearances of stock comp expenses that are not showing up in costs. So there's a lot of fundamental work behind some of these 10 times sales companies uh, where you know the fee free cash flow, 100% of it's coming from uh, stock compensation accounting gimmicks for lack of better words, which is also a very similar pattern as 99-2000. So the tech stocks is still not where you want to be. Um, any other things from a, a philosophy? Uh, you guys, I know you guys do some model portfolio work with one of our other friends here in the Philly area, or, or used to be in the Philly area, West Gray. Do you <laughs> want to talk a little bit about how you guys build some models and, and what you do together? Yeah, so uh, we, we have two beliefs, basically. One is, uh, and I'll throw in a third personal belief, one is uh, momentum work, sector rotation works, and the second one is reversion to the mean, which uh, really is value investing, right? Those two things have worked historically uh, over the course of the history of the stock market, and they're not easy to always follow. Both of them as a standalone are really hard to follow, right? You got you, you guys know better than anyone at Wisdom Tree, uh, you play the reversion in the mean trade, uh, you could be lagging the market for a long, long time before the actual reversion happens. And the same thing in the momentum trade, when you're doing uh, sector rotation in the top ranked sector is based on momentum, you're gonna go through periods of underperformance. Uh, Wes and Jack's fund uh, is doing well this year, QMOM, but if you look at MTUM, uh, the biggest momentum sector rotation fund, uh, it's not having that great of a year or the last couple years. So uh, the combination of the two using value and momentum sector rotation has the most academic research behind it that uh, shows outperformance in alpha over the long term. So we build a lot of our models around that. But you mentioned growth stocks, and growth stocks and momentum are two different things, right? Growth stocks were up 25% a year from 2017 to 2021, and then you saw the big correction, speaking of reversions to the mean. Uh, but in saying that, a lot of the small cap ones are still trading at 10 times sales, as I keep saying. Uh, but momentum is a different animal than growth, which I don't think most people realize. Momentum is there's 11 sectors in the S&P, just think of a ranking system like golf or college football or anything else. You're just ranking the strongest sectors to the weakest sectors based on uh, momentum or based on supply and demand. And you're holding the top sectors and you're not holding the bottom sectors, if that makes sense. So if you look at momentum right now, they're in energy stocks and healthcare and what would usually be con considered value. Right. So that's the big difference between momentum and growth investing, where growth investing you know, is, is really earnings growth and revenue growth and other fundamental measures. When, when you look at what's gone, so it, you are seeing the traditional momentum go towards value. Do, does, that, if you, do you, does that concern you at all that you have value doubling up with value or is that just the time? Now is the time you really want value, so let's just stick with it. Yeah, uh, now's the time you really want value, even though it's sometimes painful to hold. Value's cheapness right now versus growth is still in the 15th percentile which is pretty amazing if you think about the NASDAQ correcting at, at its bottom 35%. But, uh, you know, the S&P has gotten back to its 25-year me median forward price to earnings ratio, just below 16 times. But if you strip out technology, it's actually below, you know, it's one standard deviation probably below uh, the normal 25-year median valuation. So, it's amazing. Value's done better, and it's had a great year, but growth... 
crushed value, right, for the last decade. So, or more. Yeah. yeah, a decade or more. So really everything coming out of 08 uh, after we had the 08 crisis. So uh, we think value is still cheap, still in the 15th percentile, and uh, we have some things pointing to a recession now that makes it more likely for value to outperform. And one of the things my team's been talking about is small caps that, you know, I say, like, what's what's overly discounted? Where are the, the, the biggest widespreads and certain value looks cheap in, in, on all the traditional metrics? We find the discounts in small caps. If you looked at, say, the S&P 600 versus S&P 500, if you look at some of our strategies and, and the fundamental tilts versus the market, sort of get 9 to 10 P ratios in a lot of sort of fundamental weighted small cap indexes. Is, is Do you have a sense on do you, do you do you like small caps here do you think that it, it's vulnerable to the recession uh or that priced in yeah great question and i use all of wisdom trees research when it comes to small caps when i talk to my clients this past quarter when i talk about talk to my clients about their children because small caps are one of the few things that have gotten as cheap as 08 right and i think i take that directly from wisdom tree research. So the first thing I would say, if you're a long-term investor, if you're a millennial, if you're someone who's maybe has an account you're never going to touch, I would highly recommend dollar cost averaging and getting aggressive in small cap right now. And the reason is small cap, which few people realize because they become addicted to the S&P over the last decade, because the S&P has had such a tremendous run, small cap stocks do better than the S&P over the long term according to all the academic research, that's number one. But small cap stocks that are actually profitable, if you strip down just the small cap stocks that are profitable, the outperformance is pretty dramatic. So when you get a chance like today to buy small cap stocks for the long term, uh, not one, two, three year period, but five, 10, 15 year period, I think it's a really smart move to get aggressive because cap asset pricing models right now, you know, we're not predicting tremendous returns for large cap or large cap growth in the next three to five years, 10 years. So uh, as small caps get cheap and they may get cheaper, you know, we don't, we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the next 18, 12 to 18 months, especially if we have a recession. I would continue to aggressively dollar cost average in the small cap stocks. We, we've talked a lot about equities. We've talked about the global equity pie. We can come into more, but let, let's, for a few minutes, talk bonds. Um, how do you think about traditional allocations today? The What you normally do, stocks and bonds for you know a, a representative client, and, and then what do you do in today's environment? It's been a very interesting year for bonds. Yes. Uh, so fixed income, uh, right now is a really hard space to invest in, right? And, and we did a good job over the course of the last couple of years keeping our duration really short, using floating rate funds, using uh, short duration funds. Um, and we also use a lot of real estate as, as a bond replacement only for families that can afford to be a liquid. But we don't see fixed income returns getting dramatically better for the next five. Let me step back. We see fixed income terms, uh, returns being better than they've been the last one, two, three years, right? Because as interest rates rise, uh, the the return is actually gets better as, as soon as interest rates stop rising, especially. So some of uh, the sectors, subsectors of the fixed income market are starting to look more attractive, like muni bonds. We're not totally there yet, where returns can get more reasonable and you can start seeing a total four and a half, five percent return which is great for baby boomers, right? We have millions of baby boomers about to retire. So that's a positive thing for baby boomers. In the short term, in the next 6, 12 months, we uh, are going to keep the duration short and keep doing what we're doing. In the longer term, this is going to be better for bond investors, especially uh, uh, baby boomers retiring. The big issue, as we know, is correlation with bonds and stocks right now is at an all-time high. Yes. There was nowhere to hide this year. Uh, the traditional bond portfolio did not prote protect your downside. You have double-digit losses in the ag, right, the, the bond index. You have up to 15% losses in, in highly rated corporate bonds. So people are going through things in their portfolio that they've never seen before on the fixed income side. And it was a 40-year bond bull market, and they're getting the full experience of a bond bull market ending for the first time in – uh, baby boomers and, uh, you know, our generation, Gen X's uh, investing career, they're seeing their first bond bear market. 
Yeah, the 60-40, the standard 60-40, a lot of pain in the standard 60-40. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is where a, a good transition for the second half of our show. We'll talk a little bit about what you said from a real estate perspective. Um, we're talking here with Matt Topley, who's the founder and president of Lansing Street Advisors. Uh, Matt, in the first segment, we were talking a bit about um, how you manage portfolios. We talked about value momentum. Is there anything else you want to highlight in terms of how you build models, build portfolios for clients? Yes. Uh, the first thing I would say about Lansing Street Advisors, uh, you know, we're a virtual family office. So if you think about Lansing Street Advisors, we're doing investment consulting, which we're covering today, but also advanced planning and relationship management. And the advanced planning side, wealth enhancement, so managing your cash flow, wealth transfer, all your trust in estate, wealth protection, all your insurance needs, charitable giving, uh, making sure you give to uh, the reputable charities at the most tax-efficient way possible, exit planning for your businesses. So that falls under the advanced planning part. And then relationship management, we end up managing all your other financial relationships outside of just Lansing Street Advisors, meaning your CPA, your trust and estate attorney. Because if all these buckets aren't talking to each other, investment consulting, advanced planning, relationship management, you're not getting comprehensive financial planning. So I do want to put in there uh, a huge part of our business is the financial planning side, the virtual family office. We're trying to bring the thought process of the $50 million plus family down to the two to 10, two to $25 million market. So I, I should say that first, Jeremy, as much as we love to talk about the investment side. Uh, so what was the, the next part of the question about our portfolios is we're huge believers in using real estate in the portfolio, uh, especially uh, uh, what we do now, which is apartments and senior living. Uh, they're much less tied to the economic cycle. They're not completely dislodged from the economic cycle, but they're much less tied to the economic cycle than retail or office, both of which obviously are struggling pre-COVID and especially post-COVID. So why do we use real estate? We talked about bonds a little bit, and reality is bonds had the worst inflation-adjusted return since 1777, right? And, and the idea of investing is to get a return higher than inflation. And we do not think bonds are going to do a great job of giving returns higher than inflation in, in the next, you know, three, five, ten years. The other reason is uh, – so you have it as an inflation inflation hedge, but also a non-correlated asset, right? So if you buy REITs in the public market, you're 75 to 80% correlated to the market. If you use private real estate, especially garden-style apartments, which we do a lot of, they're very low correlation to stock market returns. And if you, if you look at your risk-return charts, private real estate has a slightly higher uh, risk than bonds, but a much higher return over the long term. Now, we have a longevity explosion coming in America. We're going to see a hockey stick spike of people living into their 90s, post 100 even, in our lifetime. And we have a huge generation of baby boomers retiring. So all of those retirees, everybody's going to be living a lot longer, and everybody wants passive, tax-efficient income. And we passionately believe and have seven your history of, of doing these real estate deals, that the best way to create that passive income is through real estate investing. Yeah, so it's, it's, so it's interesting. I mean, the, the bonds being challenged, you can see, you know, the real returns. Siegel was talking about the, the real returns at the start of the show. The tips yields started the year negative 1%. They've risen. Um, now you're slightly below 1%, but they're actually the highest they've been in a long yeah, time. Yeah. But still, you know, call it under 1%. When, when you and this is one of the th things that you and I first talked about uh, at a CIO roundtable a long time ago was was your view of bonds suck. Uh, what, what else can you do? You, this, yeah. how, th these real estate investments are things that you thought uh, could compete for people's bond allocations, and, and you've been spot on on that call. So so very good work. Now, it, and it, it, as, as you think about the returns, how, what what do you think the returns are today from some of these real estate deals that that your clients are investing in? So. Uh, I can't give the exact returns, but... Because uh, you're doing a lot of deal-by-deal deal stuff. 
Yeah, so let me give you a little background on, on the difference in the way Lansing Street Advisor does things compared to other advisors because there's barely any other advisors out there doing this. So we do real estate deals on a deal-by-deal basis, not as a blind pool fund. So there's no committed capital. There's no capital calls. And every deal comes up in its own silo, and the investor gets to elect to be in or out of that deal. Make sense? Yeah. Each deal, we have a couple of different buckets of diversity that we also really believe in. Number one, our deals are all over the country, so you're geographically diversified, and most of our deals obviously are in the fastest-growing demographics and economic parts of the country. The second diversity bucket is we do a lot of deals, 10 to 12 deals a year on a deal-by-deal basis. So the investor gets to invest in a lot of different deals and get diversified by being in a lot of different deals. So geographically diversified, um, uh, the number of deals gives you great diversity. And then the third thing is, you know, diversity in subsectors of real estate. Right now we're concentrated in multifamily apartments and senior living, both of which we think have fabulous demographics and will continue to do well in the near near and long-term future. But we've done student housing when student housing was doing really well. Unfortunately, that got to the ninth inning and we don't do anymore. We used to do a lot more value-add apartments, but when bonds started returning nothing, the value-add apartment market got a little bit too expensive, much harder to find. So we're usually diversified in different subsectors of real estate, but we do almost no office and almost no retail. Literally one or two out of 100 deals we've done have, a, have had office and retail. Now people hear private investing and, and might think it's, it's, it's uh, gonna be some very incredibly high minimums. How do you think about for, for clients what appropriate allocations could be to these deal by deal things? How, how are you managing for clients there? So uh, a little bit of a generic answer to start. Every single client is different and every client has different goals and every client has uh, different family situations. Now, we're completely comfortable with 10% of your portfolio uh, being in these deals as long as you can afford to be in 10 deals. Uh, The most important thing to recognize is the trade-off is illiquidity, right? So you cannot press a button and get your money back in these deals. Now, The good news is we call it a race to get your money back. It's three to five years on average, not every deal, on average three to five years for a refinance or an exit. So this is not buy and hold real estate. So you're investing in these deals, you're hoping for a refinance or exit in three to five years, and you're reinvesting that money in more deals. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, uh, but there's not a mechanism for you to press a button and get your money back like you can in the stock and the bond market and the public market. So 10% I'm comfortable with most investors that are Lansing Street advisors type investors. And then there's special situations, right? Business exits, uh, you know, uh, two-income families to get big bonuses once a year. Like there's a lot of moving parts uh, as far as how much of an allocation people can make to this particular product. Some people pick a number on their own for the sake of argument. Let's say it's a million dollars. They would do $100,000 in 10 deals and they just say, I'm still going to work the next 15 or 20 years. So everything that comes back to me, just keep reinvesting in more deals. That's also a common situation we see a lot of. Um, yeah, it's definitely an interesting. You don't hear a lot of this uh, where you can you can decide to per deal make the choice. You don't have to do all of them. You you can do it's not one single fund. So sort of a lot of interesting flexibility in in what you're doing. Is you talked about the volatility and being low. It, there's there's some conversation on private markets. Generally, be, you know, people think they have low vol because they're just not being marked. Is yeah. is there some of that going on in what you're talking about? So our, our subadvisor. Is Capital Solutions also a Philadelphia local firm? We're sitting in the middle of Wharton here in the middle of University of Pennsylvania. They have a number of uh, Penn graduates on their staff. They re uh, they put a new valuation, I think it's once a year on every property. So it's not as like venture and private equity. So there is a valuation on the properties that you see. The second thing I would say is uh, the difference there also is the three to five year looking to refinance or exit rather than the 10 year lockups that you see in private equity and venture. That's a big differentiator also. Uh, But I don't disagree with a lot of the private world. 
there's a lack of volatility because you don't see the reset. They don't measure it. Yeah, because they don't measure it. And that's a big part of what's going on in the markets right now, right? A lot of people are arguing we got the reset in valuations in the public markets. Now we need to see the reset in valuations in the private markets. We'll see if we get that. I think on our side, with the real estate, you see a reset on the valuations of the buildings, A, and B, that three to five year window that we're trying to refinance or exit also changes the dynamics of that question. We're talking with Matt Topley, who is the founder, president of Lansing, Lansing Street Advisors, about his uh, RIA does asset allocation, but also interesting focus on real estate. Uh, Matt, one of my colleagues wrote this big thread that uh, was, was very positive. Uh, went sort of viral on yeah. Twitter, and and the first tweet was "housing is in trouble," <laughs> and a series of ten different charts of the first one looking at sort of the combined higher interest costs from a mortgage combined with the rising house prices just skyrocketing, uh, the the price to to sort of price to income ratios of of things going yep. way high. Um, how are you, what do you think about the real estate market generally? Like how is, are these concerns as you think about the allocations to real estate? So I read the thread, it was excellent and it argues for multifamily apartments in a very strong way. So there's an eight there's been an $800 increase in the average mortgage payment in the last 6 to 12 months. Uh, typical uh, monthly mortgage is now $600 over the average rental apartment. But that's not counting the real issues. The real issues are down payment, what I call cost to carry, your maintenance on a house and everything, which you and I know really well, and taxes, right? So down payment, maintenance, taxes are the real cost. I mean, my first couple homes, I was blown away by the cost to carry, not the mortgage. The mortgage was actually really low. You know, when when things need to be done in the house, it's it's shocking how much they cost. So that leads to what we've seen in these polls where 75% of millennials who bought houses in the last few years regret it because they were locked in on the mortgage and knew what the mortgage was, but the rest of the cost to carry is really what damages you. So you throw on an $800 increase in the average mortgage payment uh, and on top of all the cost to carry, and right now it's way more expensive to own than it is to rent. The only time it's been higher was the OE crisis. So the cost to own right now is 31% higher, but in hot metro areas, it's 40 to 50% higher. I mean, John Burns Real Estate has a great chart on this. Uh, it, it's just, you can follow it all the time. It's it's just cost to own versus cost to rent. And we, are, we almost exceeded 2008 in the cost to own versus rent before the correction that we're seeing the beginnings of now. But a record amount of Americans, which I think was part of the thread, a record amount of Americans think it, uh, a record low amount of Americans, I'm sorry, think it's a good time to buy a house right now. And affordability is just at all time highs. Right. And you and I talked when we, when we first came in about work from everywhere and, and, you know, what Wisdom Tree has done in their office situation. And that's the other factor here. I mean, Millennials can work from anywhere, especially right now. This is it's what it's an interesting question. Is it a good time to buy a house or not? You know the and just for just to follow up on that thread on what we've decided, we we did go remote first. We had a big uh, office space, Forty Seventh and Park Avenue, New York. But our team saw with the pandemic, we were more productive, so we went remote first. And you're hearing a lot of some of the big banks say they want people back on the desk five days a week. And I tweeted out, you know, if you're being called to the desk, uh, we're hiring in fixed income. <laughs> I'll just repeat it here. If you need a job, fixed income, going back to the desk, we're not going back to the desk, hybrid approach. But no, I, the, you know, it, I do think that does create more demand for housing, actually. Like people could be more flexible. They, they, they want bigger houses because they're working from home. Um, and so there is a, and there's, you say demographically, I think there's some structural support. And, and to me, there's, there's a question of, well, if you buy a house today, because prices are starting to cool off, one of the, the key issues is that mortgage rates have been skyrocketing, but don't, there's going to be a point in the next few years that the Fed is done and, yeah. and lowers rates. And now maybe they settle at a higher rate than they were before, Yep. but it may not be such a bad time to buy a house. Yeah, so I, I want to be clear. I don't think the American dream is going away. I think most people eventually want to own a home. I really do. The problem is right now that the U.S. 
macroeconomically was not ready for what we're seeing right now. What do I mean by that? Coming out of 2008 crisis, we stopped building homes. At the same time, we have an explosion in longevity. So people are living a lot longer, they're working a lot longer, they're staying in their homes a lot longer. Now you have over 60% of mortgage owners have a locked-in rate below 4%. They're not moving. They're not going anywhere. I look at my development. People are hitting the age where they usually move. They're redoing their whole houses. They're not going anywhere. They're not moving. So the average rate of residential mobility right now is at an all-time low for single-family homeowners. So you have record low affordability, rising interest rates. Um, Americans have stopped moving, and you have less marriage, less children, more el elderly. Uh, how will the U.S. housing market solve this problem? I don't really know in the long, long term, but I do know this for millennials. There is nothing for sale under $500,000. So nothing. There's no inventory. If you go to middle America, you can still find homes for $250,000, $300,000, no doubt about it, which gets back to it's going to be interesting to see with work from anywhere, whether, whether those people take you up on that it, yeah it, exactly it, I, I am seeing some evidence like we have people who move from a number of people move from new york to colorado and start enjoying yeah. the outdoors and yep. uh get to go visit one next week in denver yeah um you know as as you think about the places you're investing in, in the types of things you sort of multifamily housing senior living what are the locations that you're investing the most around for those two segments so um we're in all the fast-growing parts of the country, Texas, Raleigh, uh, the Carolinas, Texas, Florida, all those things. We, we do do a fair amount locally, uh, garden-style apartments and senior living from one particular developer. But all of our uh, garden-style apartments, we have fabulous PPMs, 200-plus page PPMs that you've seen before that show all the economics, demographics, everything in the area. And all those parts of the country that we're investing in, uh, there is very little competition. Uh, in some parts of the country we're doing now, there's very little competition because we're we just did a few projects in Georgia where there's very little competition, speaking of moving new places that are exploding with growth. But uh, we have to, for right now, we are in areas that have fast-growing populations and fast-growing economies. And most of that is not New York, it's not California, it's not always the Philadelphia area, you know, it's, it's middle America in the south, southeast. I, I know you wanted to avoid specific return numbers, but I'm going to come back to trying to help <laughs> give people. So you're doing these private real estate, you have to have some expectation for returns. Um, and, and, and so there's some, some of them are cash flow. It sounds like the the multifamily could be cash flowing. There's sort of difference between cash flowing projects and development stuff. Do you want to, do you want to sort yep. of talk through a few of the different characteristics, whether it's a growth opportunity, cash flowing opportunity, and, and how, you, how you try to manage people's expectations for the types of returns they could get? Sure. So I would just say in general, I'm making a general macro comment here that right, I not, would not- Right, not a specific deal. Yeah, I would not invest in private deals uh, period where I am giving up liquidity unless it was mid-teen, high-teen returns. Mid-teens is a big number. Uh, mid-teens is a big number, especially when a 60-40 portfolio from most cap asset pricing models is projected to return 5.6% over the next five to 10 years. If you believe cap asset pricing models, which are mathematical models uh, using past returns to predict forward returns for the layperson out there, uh, the 60-40 is only predicted to return 5.6% return. I would just generalize that our real estate deals, if they did much worse than they've been doing, uh, we would still do really well uh, versus projected returns. Now, your question on new construction basically versus value add. So what is value add? Value add in simple terms is taking over apartments that are already occupied. In our particular case, most of the time when we take over an occupied apartment building, it's already 90% plus occupied and has a long history of being occupied. Once we take it over, we start to upgrade all the, all the units, upgrade all the common areas, put in gyms, yoga centers, offices, just upgrade the building, period. And as you're upgrading the building, you're raising the rents. The first three years of that project, you probably have an interest-only loan. Keep in mind all the uh, apartments are occupied, so it starts kicking off cash flow, and the investor sees 
a quarterly cash on cash return. Could be 5%, 6%, 7%. That's a value add project. Then when all the apartments are done and all the rents are raised, you usually refinance the building and take as much of your equity out as you can, or you exit the project if in fact that market lends itself to giving you a high return from exiting. So in that case, the investor is seeing a cash on cash return in the first year of the project, let's say six months out. The second type of project, which we're doing a lot more of now, is new construction, new construction apartments, new construction, senior living. All our senior living is new construction, by the way. In new construction projects, you're not seeing any cash flow for two years or two years plus for obvious reasons, right? You're building from ground up. So if you have all this new construction, then you have a grand opening, then you have to lease it up. Now, our IRRs have been higher on the new construction deals historically, uh, but you are seeing no cash flow for the first two years plus. And then the most important thing for our investors is real estate is a really, really tax efficient investment. You have to check with your CPA on exactly why and, and, and do your due diligence. But the most, maybe the most important thing for some of our high net worth investors is real estate is a super tax efficient investment. For example, I'm not a CPA, so check for your CPA, but a simple one, those cash on cash deals, because of depreciation and construction and everything, you're getting cash on cash in your first few years of the investment. In most cases, in the large majority of cases, you're showing losses on your K-1 because of the way real estate works. But again, check with your CPA. So Matt, we're in our final countdown here. Um, for people who are intrigued by this conversation, either the real estate conversation, how you manage generally, um, give us 30 seconds where they'll find you, how they can look for what, what you're doing if they want to become clients of either the real estate or just how you manage money generally. Sure. Uh, you can go to www.lansingadv.com, www.lansing, ADV, Apple David Victor, short for advisors.com. Or you can email me at mtopley at lansingadv.com. M is in Mary, T-O-P-L-E-Y, at lansingadv.com. And I also have a blog, www.matttopley.com, three T's, M-A-T-T-T-O-P-L-E-Y. Uh, There's another place you can find us. Very good. It's been a great conversation. Very interesting model of doing deal by deal real estate stuff. I uh, haven't seen much like it there. Uh, great conversation across the markets. Thanks for coming back from the shore to the studio. Matt Topley, Dion, thanks for managing here. The soundboard, Patty, our, our producer. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a good week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.